Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on State of the Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Trey Borden. For those of you who are confused, State of the Art decided to expand their niche beyond art and tech to include a variety of topics which have shaped the state of art as we know it today. With this in mind, I've been invited to take the podcast over for a month-long discussion exploring Black creativity and navigating the fine art world as a Black creative. So let's dive in. In this episode, we speak with artist Jessa Ciel about the minefield that is navigating institutions and society at large as a Black creative. Ciel will share some of her experience attending Cranbrook Art Academy, the first Black woman to graduate in the photography department, how identity shapes her creative practice, and what opportunities there are for other Black art school graduates. So, please help me welcome Jessa Ciel. Jessa, thank you so much for joining us. Jessa Ciel is a frequent collaborator of mine. We've completed several projects, uh, most notably a project called Beacon Sacramento, which was a 10-week projection project uh, where we solicited video artists to submit content around 10 different themes that changed by week. Uh, she was the curator of that project. Um, also, maybe lesser known, Jessa has had the uh, inestimable pleasure of knowing me since <laughs> I was about seven years old. We met as uh, second graders at Phoebe Hirsch Elementary. Shout out, Miss Kazanis. <laughs> um, and so anyways, uh, so thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be our guest today. Yes, I feel like I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Tom Sawyer strikes again. We'll edit that out. No, no, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be a part of this. Um, so I think that like, just, just to kind of lay some groundwork here, um, obviously I work a lot with artists, um, and you know, in the introduction, we discussed the fact that a lot of people, when they think of the fine art world or the art world generally, they don't necessarily kind of think of black people. Um, and so just in your opinion, just to establish like, what is an artist in your mind and kind of like, what function should they serve? Right. Yeah. This is a question that we asked a lot of ourselves in in grad school because you make the conscious choice to pay a substantial amount of money and a substantial portion of your life to study art. Um, I think that to me what makes an artist is someone who like makes the choice every day to commit themselves to that practice and to create with the intent to communicate some theme or some perspective, I guess, to the world at large in a creative way. And there are a lot of people who are creative, but I think an artist specifically makes art to share and communicate with the world every day. Yeah. So, I mean, so if you're making things, but no one ever sees it, that that doesn't really define you as an artist in your mind. Right. Interesting. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just because to me, it's a it's a it's it's a form of communication. So if you're not expressing it, if it's internal, then you know it's not it's not really serving its full purpose. Yeah, and obviously, a lot of, a, a big part of that communication is your identity as an artist. Right. Uh, you know, kind of like right. how you see the world, kind of what through what lenses are you viewing the the problems and kind of human conditions that you're observing. Um, that's a huge portion of it, obviously. And how do you think that, you know, especially existing in, uh, not only society, but in the art world as a, as a black, as a black woman, how has that informed kind of your approach as an artist? Mm, That's interesting. 
because I haven't been anything else but a black woman. So how would I Well, there, there was that one time. <laughs> so you've always been a black, um, very I black think, woman. Uh, well, A, my, my mother and my grandmother are poets. Um, so I was always around creatives um, intentionally making art. Um, and it just seemed like a natural thing to do. So it wasn't until later, um, especially when I attended like, you know, film school, for example, when I saw like so few people of color that I realized that most often like in, in communities of color, there's not a lot of support for people to make art or any creative practice their like job, you know, there's not a lot of support to make a living from art. Um, but that was never communicated to me growing up. You know, my, my, my mother, my grandmother always like encouraged myself and my sister to do what we wanted to do and to figure out how to make a living from it. Right. You know, that's, that's the tricky part. And I think that that's a really important point because I think a lot of people do, you know, no matter what your parents grew up doing, I mean, a lot of doctors, their parents were doctors, you know, dentists too, and, you know, all types of other professions. But I think art's special because like you said, it is difficult to learn how to, you know, turn that passion into a profession, a profession that you rely mm -hmm. upon solely financially. Um, yeah. And so, and when you, you know, another big part of navigating these spaces is mentorship. And it's a lot easier to find mentors that look like you. And so how does that affect, right, you know, right. people starting out? Like when you were in film school or later kind of doing documentary film, how did that disparity affect your ability to find kind of mentors and champions? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, since I didn't have like a lot of access to filmmakers of color had some, you know, I will say that. I mean, that's the, that's the one nice thing about like growing up in the community that I did, you know, and growing up with my mother and my grandmother is that they know so many people who are practicing a lot of the, a lot of different art forms. So it wasn't as if I never had anyone. Um, but I didn't have anyone necessarily to navigate me through like the filmmaking industry of Los Angeles. Right. And so that was like very new to me. Um, and in terms of, in terms of mentorship, um, I would say I used like the films themselves as my mentors. Like I, mm. I, I sought out like films by, um, people of color and sort of incorporated that into my film education. That was definitely not a part of my film education. I would say also in art school, you know, there was no focus on like people of color specifically, um, and, and that isn't to say that they're, that they weren't incorporated at all. I think I had like a, a, a really great, like head of my department, um, who was Liz Cohen and she really worked on like adding diversity to the voices, um, who were in our department. Uh, but in terms of specifically like black people who were working in film or working in, um, photography, a lot of that was me seeking it out on my own. And, you know, I watched films like Black Girl um, over and over again, sort of trying to understand, like, what is the aesthetic of a Black person, especially an aesthetic of a Black person working in 
um, an industry that is like mostly white, you know, um, that film was made by, um, a black man who was living in Europe, you know? And so just getting a sense of, you know, what was possible, what kinds of stories I could tell in, in, in my authentic voice. Um, that was something I sought out and, um, and created, I think for myself. And, you know, and, it's that, that's it's that added burden, you know, that you have to yeah. go seek it out, that that kind of makes things that are already daunting even that much more daunting. Um, and so, you know, getting into Cranbrook, obviously you'd had some experience in L.A. and, you know, you knew that you wanted to go to a program that would um, kind of bolster your credentials and kind of give you that space and time and expertise to yeah. really think about your practice. Um, when you were selecting grad schools or even just selecting kind of where you wanted to go, kind of how did you factor in the fact that you were probably going to end up going to spaces that, you know, even further didn't look like you potentially? I mean, I think we grew up in spaces that with mostly people that didn't look like us, you know? Um, so I don't think it was, I thought, I just think education in terms of my experience of education, it's always been like that with the exception, I think like in, preschool or something my mother like you know enrolled us into like Ileama Day which was like a black like with an emphasis on like you know African um history and like uh but generally speaking it's all it's been almost like all white especially the 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 more challenging the curriculum so I feel like I've just learned how to navigate that space from a very young age and um Hmm? No, I said, yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, but there's a difference yeah. probably even between what you experienced in LA and what you experienced going to Cranbrook and Bloomfield Hills, yeah. uh, which, you yeah, know, that was a, that was different in terms of, okay. So, so the reason I chose it, you, you were asking me the reason I chose specifically Cranbrook. Yeah, sure. Is you can right? answer that. Yeah. So I think I specifically chose Cranbrook because, um, you know, Cranbrook is in Bloomfield Hills, which is uh, about 30 minutes from Detroit. So Detroit is, you know, experiencing, I guess, a, a cultural and artistic renaissance um, of sorts. And um, I thought that was really interesting. And I, and I didn't quite understand the difference between um, Bloomfield Hills and Detroit and how separate those spaces are until I actually was in Michigan, you know, so, for example, for us, the difference between like Sacramento and its suburbs, are, it's not that big of a deal because you will, you know, the, the kind of culture that is in Sacramento sort of spreads out to, I think, all of the surrounding areas. Um, for Detroit, um, even though it's the biggest city and the most interesting city by far, um, there is like a there's a, there's a intent to separate like the suburbs from Detroit and to the point that like, there's no public transportation from Detroit to Bloomfield Hills. And that's done purposefully so that people from Detroit cannot access Bloomfield Hills. And when you say people um, from Detroit, you mean, you're really saying black, black people. people. Right, yeah. right. Black people. Right. Because it's like, because Bloomfield Hills is like mostly white, um, and wealthy. mostly older uh, the average income is like 250,000 and above. 
and the majority of the citizens of Detroit are black. Um, a number of people living in or right about uh, right around like the poverty level, under or around the poverty level. Um, in terms of education, the school systems couldn't be like more different, you know. Um, so yeah, there was there was a there was a real intent um, to to have this sort of segregation, um, which was weird to me because you have institutions like the DIA, which is the D Detroit Institute of the Arts. Um, and, you know, interesting artistic places in Detroit that the world, I think, celebrates in a way. And the citizens, like, you know, 30 miles away want to, you know, sort of distance themselves from because they don't want to deal with, like, the city and the Black citizens. Well, I mean, that, and that's... You know, when you talk about that kind of intent, uh, and and not just intent, but a really effective execution of these policies that separate this place from Detroit, a place that you know, as a black artist, you were intrigued by and wanted to be involved with, it, you know, it even further isolates you at a place like Cranbrook because, like, literally, right. it's hard to I leave. Felt very, yeah. So I, I mean, that was like a huge part of my experience. Is I felt very isolated. I mean, we were. I didn't have a car um, when I moved there. So for the most part, I sort of was stuck on campus. <laughs> and I saw a lot less of Detroit than I thought I would. You know, also, like, it's just the difference of moving from California to the Midwest. Um, you know, I think we have a different attitude towards, like, public transportation and a different attitude um in terms of just weather, right? It's like we can sort of play all year round. Like when you live in Michigan and it gets to be like negative 25 degrees, there's not really, there's no incentive to leave your home. Yeah, you're, you're isolating your bed at that point. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I would be. I mean, I think at the time of this recording, it's probably like negative 40 in Michigan. So bye. Yeah. Very intense, yeah. Then and and I'm not there now, obviously. And that was a, that was a lot to do with the weather, and also like partially the culture. Um, but yeah, I think I didn't really know everything that I was going into, but I did know there was like some tension. I won't say I was like completely blind to that. Um, and I I thought it would be interesting. Actually, I thought this would be interesting for my art to be in a place like this. You know. Um, and I, it was, you know, it was something that I eventually turned around and tried to, to speak to in some way, you know, not being from Michigan myself, not being from Detroit myself, but just being a person of color who's, um, who's in this institution that is a mostly white institution. I was able to find a voice in that discussion so can you tell me a little bit more about the evolution of that? Because I think that you went there, you know, with these expectations about what you might experience in Detroit and what you might experience, you know, in your program specifically. And you enter this environment that's a lot more isolated, a lot more even potentially hostile. I mean, certainly the community yeah. is hostile to your presence, but that certainly must trickle into the campus. And so kind of like how, how were, you know, kind of what did, how did you begin to approach that and how did that evolve over time? 
Uh, I think, okay. So when I, so when I first went to art school, um, it was, it was to understand like art as a practice because I had come from a film background and even though film is an art, the theory behind film and theory behind art are very different, you know? So I wanted to get sort of grounded in that and understand like critiquing, you know, which is something that, you know, when you do film critiques and art critiques, they're very, very different spaces. Um, and Cranbrook is based around like critiquing. There are no classes. You just, um, basically make work and, um, you're in your department and you critique and you can visit other departments and critique, um, the work that other like mediums are, are creating. So I found that to be really interesting. And I also thought going to art school, honestly, you could, if you see, like, I didn't have a vision board, but if I had a vision board, it would literally be people holding hands and like dancing on hills, you know? (laughs) I thought it was going to be this like utopia and I thought it would be like a nice respite from kind of the grind and the, and the, and the overwhelmingness of like life, you know, um, where you would be around a bunch of people who wanted to play and wanted to create and wanted to like have fun, you know? Um, and so, I had a huge like (laughs) shock in every way that you can imagine it was nothing like that, you know, and it was so unrealistic. And so I remember, I think one of the questions I had read, um, was that you were thinking about asking me was like, what would I give as advice to other people who were thinking about going to art school? It's not going to be that it's not going to be you just frolicking in the hills, like, you know, finger painting and getting in touch with your lost child. <laughs> like that sounds like preschool. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like the preschool you're talking about. <laughs> and that was what I was really hoping for. So when I went there and experienced like this huge like shock, culture shock and every kind of weather shock and and like just being in a different like state, a different like place away from my family shock. Um I started making work that was really abstract. And also because like when you're in art school, a lot of the time um, and you start getting into like theory and you start getting into like art practice, like, like these sort of abstract concepts are things that people really respond to. Or I will say like white people really respond to, you know, there's a lot of non-identity work that is made by white people. And there's a lot of identity work that is made by people of color and identity work is disparaged in a way that like sort of abstract, like theoretical work isn't. Um, so initially when I started making work and I started going to critiques and seeing what that was, I was like, well, I'm going to try to make this sort of abstract theoretical work, you know? Um, and so for the first year, I would say that I really like worked on like making that kind of work. And it's interesting because one of my classmates um, said when we were leaving uh, the year, he said, you know, your work is fine. Your work is great. He's like, but I know that you have so much more to say than what you're saying. And I think your work would be so much stronger and more powerful if you said what it is that you really want to say. Um, and I, and that, and that stayed with me, you know, um, and I almost like didn't go back to grad school for the second year because it was such a difficult and isolating experience. Um, 
What, what made, made you back. go back? Oh God. Like I try to go back to that space because I was so convinced not to go back. And I had a conversation with my grandmother and I was telling her all the reasons why I didn't want to go back. And by the time the conversation was over, I had convinced her of why it would actually be a good idea for me not to go back. But somehow in that conversation and her talking about all of the, I don't know, her pointing out, I think in a lot of ways, like the privileges that I have and the opportunity that I had um, to, that a lot of people never get, you know, um, I, you know, sort of sat in my brain and I, and I said, you know, I could do this. It's going to be probably the hardest thing that I ever do. And honestly, I will say up until this point in my life, it, it has been the hardest thing I've ever done, but I did go back. And, um, when I went back, I went back really with this intent, like I'm going to say the things that I haven't been saying. I'm going to speak out in a way that I haven't been speaking out. And this is an experience that I'm paying for and it's experience that I chose and I'm going to have this experience the way that I want to have it this time. Well, that's, um, and, I mean, that's a, that's a, a really bold and kind of uh, necessary approach. I mean, something you said struck me that's like, you know, this added burden, you know, when you get to these really unpleasant and difficult experiences, uh, you're yet still supposed to be so grateful. You know, right. it's like, yeah. you're like, you're lucky to be here suffering with all these people who can't stand you right. don't want, and want to silence and that, you. And that was, yeah, yeah. And that's constantly like, that was the, that was the feedback I was getting from everyone. So it's like, I was getting that feedback from like the administration as well. Kind of like, you know, when I would, when I would say things, when I would sort of, sort of complain about things or, you know, just, just feel like I was so unsettled, you know, and I'm like, I'm feeling like the, there's more to this, uh, more to this, like, for example, like racism is interesting, because it doesn't work in this like one to one, like dynamic, right? It's not like somebody walks up to your face anymore, and like says the N word to you most of the time, right? So you get this sense, like as a black person constantly, when you're in these situations, like, something's off. Like people aren't talking to me in the same way that they're talking to like people who are not of color, you know, people, white people, or people are excluding me in a way that they don't seem to be excluding like white people. But there's all kinds of reasons that you could give to yourself for why you're being excluded or why you're being talked to in a different way. Maybe this person just doesn't like me, or maybe this group of people don't really like me, or maybe they're excluding me because my work doesn't fit in as well with, you know, with the aesthetic as their work does, or maybe they're like, you know, all going to this place without me because, you know, all of their schedules just lined up and they forgot to check in or, you know, there's like a million things that you can give maybe I smell bad. Like, you know, you <laughs> just say all kinds of things. You kind of, ra you kind of try to rationalize yourself all the time. Um, when why, it's usually the most obvious thing, when it's usually the most obvious thing, you know, um, but people also will deny it. You know, it's like when I, when I did speak out and I was like, this is, uh, you know, these, these things are racially motivated. Like you guys are being exclusionary, like, because of, you know, the color of my skin or the color of these other people's skin, you're being exclusionary because of our ethnic, like, backgrounds, because of the cultures that we identify with, because of the queerness, because of whatever. Your like, gender. I was just like, 
yeah, because of gender, I was like, you, because we're other, you're excluding us. And there was so much backlash to that because the minute that you start saying, giving words to it, like people are, they don't want to be boxed in by that, you know, like nobody wants to say, I am a racist. I'm a sexist. I need to reevaluate the ways that I've been interacting with the people around me. You know, it's like, you could tell a person who is white, who only talks to other white people, who only like basically finds themselves in spaces with other white people and say, Hey, like you just paying only, only paying attention to, to, to whiteness is, uh, is a problem. You know, this is prejudice and, um, and it does make you a racist in some way. It doesn't make you a card carrying Ku Klux Klan racist, but it does make you a racist because now you've, you're, you, you've created a space that is unpenetrable to people of color and that person will fight you tooth and nail. I, that is not me. You know, I listen to NPR or whatever. Oh, like, you know, <laughs> I just like, I'm not racist. Like, I like Childish Gambino. I'm not racist. I'm like, well, you know, you, you can might like, like him because you're racist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I love Childish Gambino, but I'm like, depending on why you like him as a as a white person who never wants to be around black people, like, I want to hear that explanation like today. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, it's so interesting. And and so, and so you get a lot of backlash. You get a lot of pushback when you start telling people about themselves, you know, about themselves. You know, you really do. I got a lot of pushback. I got so much pushback. And, um, well, what, can, I remember, I, think, I remember you telling me a story, uh, you know, this is when you, you know, had basically become almost fully radicalized at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was concerned about your safety. <laughs> Um, but I believe there was an incident where you actually flyered the campus. Um, I did. And will yeah. you please will you please share that because that 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 gives me that brings me such yeah. joy. So I just like I got really I was so bothered. There was a show. So this was specifically triggered by a specific incident. There was a show that was put on by a group of um, by a group of artists who uh, I went to school with and they um, were from my department, primarily from my department and one other other department. I was in the photography department and I think the other department that was represented was the ceramics department. And so, you know, when we looked at the artists that were chosen, they were all white. They were almost all male. Um, and there was a specific exclusion of the artists of color who were in those departments. And, you know, even though we didn't have like a ton of black students on campus, we did have a number of like Chinese students. Um, we had some Indian students, we had some, um, you know, Latino students. So to me, you know, it was just a, a gross like oversight to not include even one person of color. And, and what was interesting too, is that the people of color who were in the departments were friendly with all of these students. So there was no there, you couldn't say, Oh, I just didn't like them. That's why I didn't include their work. Um, and so who made the selection of the artists? They did. The, the, the students, students themselves. themselves. So, okay. The students decided that they were wanted to put on their sh- own show and that they were going to select the artists and that they were going to like, and it was off campus. Right. So that started this whole debate because, A, you know, the students 
were like feeling really attacked because um, they were like, we did this thing. We put this on ourselves. Like we found a space. Like we, you know, we're putting in like our own money. I don't know if it, it, it costs or whatever it costs, but you know, they were just like, and now what we're getting is a bunch of pushback from it um, for being exclusionary. And, you know, and that wasn't our intent at all. And literally one of them said to me, you know, it was just about the work and like the students of color who are in this department, their work just doesn't, it's not up to par, you know, it's not good enough basically to be in the show. And it doesn't, it doesn't talk well with the rest of the artwork. And so, um, well, that's just, yeah. So I was just, yeah, exactly. Right. It's like all the things It just triggers everything in you as a person to hear that. So I, um, this was like burning in me for like, you know, days, weeks, I don't know, just thinking about this. It was really upsetting to me. So there was one evening where I was just like, I'm I want to say something because this isn't just this group of people. This is like this kind of just overarching, like, you know, attitude, like on this campus where it's like, um, the voices that are heard, the voices that are strongest are, um, the white, like male voices, you know, and, um, it's hard to get, it's hard to get heard in this space. That's how, that's how I was feeling. Right. So I created these flyers and the flyers basically said, um, they, you know, you had to, you had to follow each one. It was basically creating like a, a story, you know? So it was just like, we are here, we are in these spaces. Um, and you know, for, for so long, like we've been the cook, we've been the like, you know, maid, we've been the supporting actor, we've been the, you know, whatever, all the behind the scenes things that have basically made these, all of the different institutions, like, uh, possible successful, you know, possible. Yeah. And so, and I was like, but you guys don't see us. And that was the thing that took me aback. I was like, you just literally don't see us, you know? And, um, and that, you know, it's like, it's like when you, this might be going a little off, but it's like when I would watch Seinfeld and I love Seinfeld. Right. But it's like Seinfeld was always criticized because there were like no people of color who were showcased. And, 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 you know, at that moment, to me when I was thinking about this on campus, cause I was a kid when like Seinfeld was on, but it clicked to me. I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't purposefully exclusionary. It was literally because they just don't see us, you know, <laughs> like, like a white person could be in New York city and not see a person of color because that is not part of their lives. You know, they can navigate the space and we don't have that as black people. We don't ever have the luxury of just seeing the other black people in the room. We always are dealing with white people if there are superiors or there are colleagues or, you know, they're the person who's, who you have to talk to to get the thing that you want a lot of the time. We don't ever get to just not see them. So I, you're like, you're going to see me today. Yeah. So I just like flyer the campus. I was just like, but we are here and we are, and I was like, here are all the things that we are, you know, um, I can't remember all the language of it, but it was long and it was a lot of flyers and I don't even remember where I copied it somewhere on campus. I was able to make all these copies <laughs> and then I started from like the, um, 
the administration's office. And I started, that was the first flyer. It was like right outside of like the photography department. So it was upstairs, first flyer, flyered all the way down the stairs and just kept flyering like all throughout the campus. I didn't even realize it was going to be enough flyers to like fire all over the campus, but it fired like all over the campus. And you did this by yourself? Like, were people looking at I did this all by myself in the middle of the night or something, you know? It's just like (laughs) me just burning with like rage and determination. Like, I gotta say that, I gotta say something. Like, somebody's gotta say something, you know? So I flyered all over and then I think the last flyer had my name. Like, I didn't want it to be anonymous. It wasn't ever supposed to be anonymous. Um, that's great. So then what happened is that like, you know, I woke up the next morning to a bunch of commotion. And so the commotion was because I didn't realize it, but it was like the day that the sponsors come to Cranbrook. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite stories ever. (laughs) They make such a big deal out of this day, but you know me, I, and you know me very well. It's like, I'm very absent-minded. So like, and those things like don't. But yet flyer in the middle of the night. Yeah, I'm firing in the middle of the night. I fire in the middle of the night, but I don't remember that the sponsors are coming the next day. It wasn't on purpose. It was just like, I didn't remember. You're like, I didn't see you. Yeah, I really (laughs) like, I did not think about it. So then they have like this very big, you know, they have this big to do to put on all these like kind of shows or whatever for the people who are coming in and like, and like giving money to the, to the art like school. So, um, well, and you're like, maybe the- if you had involved me, then I would have known that shit was yes tomorrow. <laughs> and since you did it, I didn't know. Because we all had to like clean up our studios and like we were all supposed to like put artwork on our studio walls and everything and and kind of make it inviting. And then they can also buy art if they want to and all that stuff. Right. So. um so, you know, the campus maintenance, like see the signs first and they start freaking out. And then I guess they're communicating like what's going on anyway. At some point, there's an executive decision, even before I think any of the sponsors get to the campus to take the work down. So they took it all down. But some of the Cranbrook students had seen it and started reading it and had posted it like on like social media. So then it became this conversation about censorship. You know, so the mm. president, I think it was the president of the campus at the time had given the executive order to, I don't know if he, you know, there was like this disputing things, but had given the order to take it down because the, you know, the director of all the Cranbrook like schools, because Cranbrook is like a grad school, but it's also like a boarding school, a very prestigious boarding school. So the, so the head of that's, of the, of the entire schools, like, was like, just take it down. Uh, it just needs to be taken down. And so whoever's, whoever made the decision, the work was taken down. I think that actually what happened, like, I, you know, I'm going back in time, but I think that what happened is like, they knocked on, cause all the Cranbrook faculty live on campus. So I think they knocked on the president's door, like while he was like having his coffee, like on his treadmill. And they were just like, what the fuck is going on at Cranbrook <laughs> school? Like what the, you know, like you need to like, you're you like, need to you, deal with you need to deal with this because they're about to like lose all our money, and that's really what yeah. we care about. Yeah. So they were just like, and that there's like, this is unacceptable. So he just was like, I didn't really know the context of it. I took it down. So then it became like a conversation between me and the administration and one other um, one other student who also was like really uh, who had written a letter. She had written a letter, like basically talking about the the culture that was happening on campus, and um, 
And she was, she was really upset by that particular show, which was like all of these like white artists. And, and, and so she had written this letter to the administration. So basically they talked to both of us at the same time. And, you know, they kind of were like, yeah, we get it. Like we were young. We, you know, we want to disrupt things too. Like we get it. We're on your side, like whatever support that you need. Very dismissive. Uh, but, you know, we had to take it down and like, you know, there are protocols to follow, which there aren't, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, generally speaking, it depends, you know, it's like, a, you could flyer the whole school in another context and not have it taken down, you know, obviously, um, without getting permission from anyone. So, so it was kind of ridiculous. So then that day, I'm in my studio, and it's like, just so many, like, older white people who come in kind of, you know, with this attitude, like I, I created this or I sponsored this, you know, and, and I'm like important and you're not, you know? So I was really like not wanting them to come in my studio and not wanting them to see my work, you know? And also because historically, like they don't buy work like mine, you know? So I kind of, I just put on a weird mask, like an elephant mask. And I did yoga in my studio. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And they were walking by and people were like, should we go talk to her? Like, what is she doing? And everyone was like, you don't want to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> she crazy. She had enough. And I felt like I was crazy. You know, I really did. I was like, I feel like my, my, my mental state is suffering like in this place because, you know, in that moment, I just felt so, I was like, you guys have taken down the thing that I really had to say. Like literally. Literally took down the thing that I had to say. And now I'm supposed to be a performing monkey to like raise money for this campus. And I know that that's like not the whole thing. I understand like administration and like budgeting and like how running an institution is like difficult and like you do need like the support of the community. But from my point of view at that particular time, I was just like, this is not, this is like, so, uh, you know, de demeaning to me, <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to be the example for you of like diversity. And I don't want to be the example of, of how well you're doing at this institution when you don't value me and you don't want to hear the things that I have to say. All right, everybody, we wanted to take a quick break to say, hey, we hope you're loving the show and we want to know more about who you are and what you want to hear. It helps us continue to make great content that you love and it helps us attract advertisers so we can get paid to continue to make awesome content for you. Please go to sodapodcast.com slash survey to help us out. That's S-O-T-A podcast.com slash survey. Another amazing way we support the show is through our Patreon page. We've actually worked down the street for Patreon for the last six years and seen them go from an idea to a platform that has helped creators make over $300 million. The thing we know from being in the art business is that selling art is hard, in part because it can be above someone's budget, or as a podcaster, you need 10,000 listeners before getting any of the ad agencies to talk to you. That's not even always the best way to monetize. Patreon is a great way for you to connect with your fans and invite them to become members. 
So for any creators interested in learning more, you can actually apply to speak to a Patreon launch specialist by heading to patreon.com slash soda slash apply. That's patreon.com slash S-O-T-A slash apply. Thanks for checking us out and back to the show. And you so obviously value others above me when your, your stated purpose is actually to value me. You know, right. I mean, that's the, the hypocrisy of it is what's really frustrating at times is that on the one hand, you know, and I don't think that you're a naive fool for having this idea that art school would be a pleasant experience where people would be wanting to connect with one another and help each other and support one another and open their minds more. I think that is what any lay person would think of as a MFA program. I mean, maybe people who have absolutely no uh, contact with any, but you know, the yeah. idea of art is meant to be kind of this humanistic tradition that they, you know, kind of centers people and centers experiences and, and are open-minded. Like the art world is artists are thought of as these really kind of progressive and open-minded and collaborative individuals, which, you know, of course, everyone's not like that. But I think that for them to, you know, at least espouse these values for prospective students and to current students, but then when the rubber meets the road and it gets difficult to uphold those stated values, like that's when you get really frustrated. It'd be one thing if they were like, it's a racist ass place, but you'll hella know how to make films. So if you like that situation, come on down. Like that's not how it's <laughs> that's not how it's pitched. So it's like, why would you, you know? That would be a great pitch. That would be like, like I would I love, love that. that. Pitch, you yeah, know? like I love that. That's like yeah, I um yeah, that wasn't the case, and uh, obviously, and I do think that people had the experience that I wanted to have. You know, I could see it. I could see that there were people who were just mm. like. I found my community, I found my calling, and I'm making this beautiful, you know, I'm having this beautiful experience with all the people that I really wanted to have it with. And I was so envious of that. And I think, like, mm. you know, when I think back on a very difficult person to deal with and probably really angry, and I won't say that I wasn't because I was, but in general, that's never been like a defining characteristic of my personality. I think that for a long time, I couldn't even access my anger. You know, it was so hard for me to even access my anger because I just buried it probably so that I wouldn't seem angry, you know, so I wouldn't be some stereotype. You know, I saw like my mom's experience navigating academia and always it was like she was the angry black woman. And I think for me, going through my experience, I was like, well, that's definitely not what I want because everything was so much harder for her because of that, you know? But then I became her and my, <laughs> or, was, or I stepped into her shoes and I understood exactly what that experience was and I, and I chose to deal with it in a lot of similar ways. I mean, I think even more so than her because I don't think my mother would have ever gone and like flyered her entire campus, you know, in that way. Before sponsor day? No. Yeah. I mean, also she would have been more mindful of those things. But um, <laughs> but I, and, and then, you know, I also said to myself when I started having that in, in inner critic, I was like, it's okay to access your anger as a black woman, it's okay to be angry. You know, it's like so often, like as black women, we don't even want to like show anger or demonstrate anger or be angry because we don't want to only be defined by our anger. And when we do show our anger, that is the only thing that we're defined by, you know? And a Other lot people, of times expressing it doesn't lead to good outcomes. Like, exactly. you know, it's like, it's like I can 
you know, fire the whole campus and say exactly what the hell I'm feeling. And it'll still get taken down and it'll be business as usual the next day. And I'll have to be accepting these sponsors into my studio, you know, against my will. So like, what's even the purpose? Right. And that's how I felt. I mean, it was, yeah, it was just a very, you know, not everyone had the same experience as me. So I can't say that I can speak for every black experience either. You know, that's the other thing. It's like, I'm sure that there were some black people who went through the program who and navigated it in a completely different way than I did, you know, so their experience would be very different. Um, What was the kind of solidarity amongst, you know, like, was there kind of like a we're in this together mentality? Or was it pretty much like people had their own? It was like, for my year, I didn't really get the sense that there was a solidarity, solidarity, we're all in this together. I thought, I think it was a lot of like, survival. Because also, like, you know, just understanding that there was a, such a diversity in the experience of the Black people who had ended up at Cranbrook in the first place. You know, I was the only Californian. Um, and California has its own, like, set, like, you know, people respond to you in a specific way. It's like the way that I talk, you know, um, kind of the way that I present is, you know, different um, than a lot of the a lot of other people who were there, you know, I think people, I think all kinds of people think when they meet me, I seem flighty or something because I'm light. I laugh, you know, I I have Valley girl kind of accent, you know, they're just like, Oh God, like she's not serious, you know? Um, and, uh, not that I didn't have any tension with the other black people who were at our campus either. You know, it's just that, you know, we were all navigating the experience differently. We all came from different, like, experiences. One girl was from Texas, you know, another woman was from, um, where, uh, Wisconsin, you know? So just like, you know, we're just all kind of coming from our own stuff, bringing that stuff in and reacting to all the things like really differently. But I would say the second year students, when I was, when I was there was, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, the first year students, when I was there in my second year, the first year students did come together and they really did form like a strong, like black union. And that was really lovely to see. And they even like were able to put on a show that addressed like black identity in this space, you know, and I really liked that. And that created a conversation because they were like, we want to have this black show in the institution. So it created a conversation around like, well, when we wanted to have our show where we, we didn't have any black people, how come it's okay for you to have a show where you don't have any white people? And that was such a great conversation to have because, and I thought, you know, the, the, the person who put it on was Marcellus and he, you know, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but, but the understanding that I had of what he was saying was that it's different when it's intentional because we specifically had a purpose and a point to having a show about black identity, which is to, 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 you know, basically say, here we are, we are visible. We are here. We are making good art. We are make we are like a presence, you know, on this campus. And also here are some of the things that we have to navigate that you don't, you know, and, when the other show happened, it wasn't like we're having an expression of whiteness or we're celebrating whiteness. Here's our specific point of view. And we wanted to have this show to communicate that. 
the it was it was um it was incidental almost yeah it like, was, we didn't it even was, we didn't even notice you weren't here exactly you know it was it was a lack of you know intense you know which again like going back to like what i say makes you an artist or what doesn't make you an artist like being an artist is an intent you know a specific intent and and not understanding the um, outcomes of your actions to me, um, you know, it's, 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 that's not art. <laughs> that's not art. They could have definitely said, here's this perspective that we were trying to have. And it would have been like, okay, we understand that that's art, but they di- didn't do that. They were just mine, you know, I don't, I, what's the opposite of mindful, mindless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, brainless. I think that, uh, I mean, Jessica's deep. She's like, they weren't even showing art. <laughs> but I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think that like part of, you know, when I, I, I had the pleasure of visiting you um, at Cranbrook and sitting in on a couple of crits. And I, I think that the, one of the really interesting things about it is when, you ha- when people had to explain kind of what the purpose of them making this work was. Because I think there's certain work that, you know, has an obvious aesthetic value uh, and that doesn't, really surprised but that a lot of people like and there's other things that are just so deeply personal that no one's going to understand it unless you explain it but I, I always thought it was really fascinating to sit in on those because people were forced to kind of re-examine their preconceived notions and kind of their assumptions and the more successful people I think were the ones who were a little bit more open-minded to the criticism I mean the whole point of showing it and defending it is so that you have to examine someone else's perspective. And so if that's not what you're at art school to do, or that's what you're there to do, period. I think that there's almost no industry where a certain amount of open-mindedness and the willingness to kind of step outside yourself and hear what someone else has to say who's not you um, doesn't benefit you. So Yeah, that's what makes you great, honestly. That's what makes you, that's what makes you stand out in your field is the ability to listen to feedback, accept it, like filter out which what isn't working for you or what isn't going to move you forward and accept the things that are and respond to it to make something better. I will say that I'm like, from my experience there being critiqued constantly all all of the time, kind of being shredded sometimes to to bits. um, It's made me a much better artist. And even though I did not get any kudos from the institution for bringing these sort of issues to their attention, and I know I wasn't the only one, so I won't take all the credit, but the institution has changed greatly since I've been there. You know, they had they hired the first black woman to be the head of photography, um, wow. Danielle Dean. You know, that was that was not very long, like after I left. But like, I think most of the departments have different heads. Um, the president is a different president. Like the, the campus was really shaken up, you know, I think as a result of just people coming into their power and bringing it into their attention and saying like, we want to be educated in a different way, you know? I think that like the people have to adjust to the times and to the makeup of their bodies, obviously their student bodies. Um, but I also think that a lot of that probably had to do with the kind of macro climate. I mean, when you arrived yeah. at Cranbrook, it was 2014, you know, mm-hmm. fall 2014. Uh, by, by spring 2016, we were in a really different world. I can only imagine what's going on at Cranbrook today. Um, how do you feel like the political climate, you know, obviously you've graduated now and you're a working artist in the world. 
Um, how has this experience kind of shaped your your practice now? And you know, how is that practice, you know, much better equipped to respond to the current political climate? Yeah, this- I think that like in academia, a lot of the time, um, in art specifically, there's sort of a an attitude about social practice um, that is uh, disparaging, you know, and um, and for me, after Trump was elected, and you know the the political climate since then, the political climate I've since forever, honestly, you know, the social climate since forever, um, and the ways that it impacts, you know, people who look like me. It made me feel so strongly that there always needs to be some sort of social element to my work. You know, I believe that identity work can communicate something specific and can only be communicated by someone like me, you know, by somebody who, um, by, by any person of color, or any person who's, 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 uh, a marginalized, um, part of a marginalized community. You know, and um, I think people like obviously should be able to make whatever they want to. I won't say like every black person needs to make work about being black because, you know, the 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 beauty of real equality is that we all get to make whatever we want to. But for me specifically at this moment in time, I feel so strongly that it's my duty to use my platform to speak about the things that most enrage me or the things that make me so passionate or the things that I feel need to have attention because I can't deal with them going on that way for another second, you know, and, and I can't, I can only make art in that way. You know, Beacon was like such a great like project to do like when leaving after leaving um grad school because it because we we tackled like social issues that I care so much about and I got to curate work from so many different kinds of voices speaking about the 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 people that they are and why that it's important to include their voice you know (laughs) like which shouldn't be a hard thing to have to prove you know it shouldn't have to be, but it is. And just seeing people like walk by and say, God, that's the first time I've seen somebody who looks like me or I've seen like someone who is talking about like, you know, the things that I deal with every day, like this large on the side of a build building was so beautiful, you know, and and just the more that I make work, the more that I want to give that experience to more people. Um, I think that that's the only way to kind of push people towards change is by confronting them. I don't think that people are, you know, can be trusted to get there on their own, but I also don't think that, you know, this exists in a vacuum. I think that one of the good things about kind of your work is that I think that while it obviously comes from the perspective of someone who's experienced a lot of this, you know, oppression, unfortunately, it also, I think, you know, remains somewhat accessible to the open-minded person who has not experienced those things. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the, the whole point is 
for your work to 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 speak on many levels. You know, that's what a successful artwork is. A successful artwork isn't the same thing as, you know, a social, you know, movement, right? I mean, but it can speak to that as well. And so I, I hope that my work can speak on all of those levels. I care about so many aspects of arts. Um, but I hope my lasting legacy is like, I made great work, but I also made things that make people take notice and make people more mindful of what we as Black people are going through. Um, a couple of different things before we uh, kind of take our, you know, kind of wrap up. You recently gathered some of your um, Cranbrook alum, Black Cranbrook alum, and some of the artists that you had defriended. <laughs> defriended. I mean, I guess you quit Facebook, so you defriended everybody. <laughs> that's, a, that's a non sequitur. Um, but uh, some people that you befriended in Detroit who are also Black to kind of put together a podcast called Black Art school graduates yes yeah that was great um i was interested to know specifically um i had seen childish gambino's this is america um and i had such a strong reaction to it like the first time i the first time i watched it i think it was with you right um and you showed it at your house and i and it was huge it was on like a giant projector and i couldn't watch it i had to like walk out of the room um, and it was a, it was a while before I could finish the whole, uh, video and it really, um, you know, just triggered something for me. And I was wondering, you know, what other people thought about it. And so I remember looking at reviews and looking at, um, you know, the discussion that was happening in pop culture and most of the, most of it, you know, wasn't by people of color, but even the critiques that were specifically by black people, um, were not like, you know, like an in-depth sort of art critique. And so I was like, that might be really interesting to get the perspective of like people I went to school with who are black and what they would think about this, um, this video and what it means because it was very like artistic. Um, and so let's critique it as an art form. Um, and so I got, I think five of my, um, I'll call them colleagues together, former, um, you know, students at, at Cranbrook and all black. Um, and we, we got on a call and discussed, you know, within an art context, like what that video meant. And there was something so satisfying about it, you know, and so it's something I'm really interested in, like moving forward in terms of um, in terms of fleshing out this podcast is, you know, what the experience um, or not necessarily even the experience. Yes, the experience of like black artists um, in in the art world, um, but also specifically like what the perspective is of other black artists on, you know, on black art and like very, very rarely do you get the opportunity to be critiqued by someone who is a person of color, specifically by a person who's a, who's a black person in the art world. 
So there's something really satisfying about it because there are things that you speak to as a black artist that is when you're talking about like, you know, blackness in your art that a general audience can, can interpret. And in some ways like, you know, um, understand, but there's something like, you know, it's like when I'm listening to no name, for example, there's something that there's some lines that she says that I'm like, you know, this is, this is like such a black American experience. And, um, and something that you have such a deep reaction to, um, and understanding of because you've lived it, you know? Um, and, and I really, uh, thought that might be beneficial for other people like getting this, um, you know, kind of insider, um, look into, um, these aspects that maybe not everyone has experienced themselves. Well, yeah, I think that that was a, a lively discussion. I think that like, it's going to be so important going forward to make more and more spaces like that. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. podcasts is a, is a good way to kind of have an intimate conversation be spread widely. I mean, as evidenced by this, um, as well, but I think that, uh, so many different types of intersections and, and new kind of modes of this communication. If, if art is communication, then there's going to have to be a much more concerted effort, um, whether you're an MFA graduate or just a, a working black artist who has something to say um, to provide forums for that, for these things to be said. And so one of the last, the last question I want to ask you is I think, what do you think would actually have to happen for these spaces to become kind of these utopia that you imagined and for mm-hmm. these places to actually be representative of the kinds of ideals that they espouse? Like what, what does that even look like? What would that even take? Is there anything? Yeah, I definitely think that, um, you know, what's starting to happen, which is a recognition of where the lack is, you know, one of the things I felt was um, helpful at my grad school was that Liz listened to me, you know, and, um, and she even gave me like some sort of techniques to navigate like this space, you know. Um, and she, uh, and she spoke a lot to like the lack of diversity, like on that, on that campus. And, um, and I think, you know, that's the, that's the change moving forward is the positions of leadership need to also reflect diversity, racial, gender, um, sexual, and um, ethnic diversity, you know, um, there's still in so many institutions, when you look at the top leadership, the president, the administration, right, as a whole, um, mostly white and mostly male, you know, you will, you will go to so many institutions that talk about diversity, and for their entire lifespan have only been run by a white man. Right. It's, it's, that is not the way to move forward. You have to have people in positions of power, people who can actually like enact policy and make change. Um, you have to, you have to have the diversity in those roles, you know, 
Um, diversity doesn't work from like the bottom up, you know, it's, it's got to start looking like from, you know, start, you got to start from the top down. Um, and so I, I think that that will be the thing that makes a shift, but I also think that, you know, uh, like as people of color, we need to move into creating our own spaces. Um, and because a lot of the times we won't be promoted in these institutions, we won't be, um, running these institutions anytime soon. Right. So I think that it's really important for us to start like, you know, navigating, um, navigating basically the, the process of creating our own, Well, you know, like like that bank you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. We need, we need to create all the institutions, banks, art schools, <laughs> you know, taxis, all that. Um, yeah, well, um, well, this has been a really uh, wonderful way to begin our month on black creatives. Uh, Jessa, I really appreciate you um, being so candid and open about your experiences and I just know that you have many more things to say and many more people to not be silenced by. So <laughs> I look, I hope, I hope to be, uh, there for many of those instances. And so, um, just thank, thank you. you really thank you much. for having me. I'm very honored to be the first person selected, um, from your guest hosting. And I'm looking forward to listening to, um, the other, uh, guest speakers that you have. I think this was really awesome and interesting and um, I'm, I'm just really happy to be a part of it. Okay, awesome. Well, you've set the bar very high and obviously uh, very black, which is exactly <laughs> what I wanted and there could be no other way. So thank you so much. Much love and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you all for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about Jessa Ciel at imcl.com or follow her on Instagram at artisciel. Be sure to tune in next week as we delve into how black artists can break into fine art spaces without compromising their blackness. Stay tuned.